welcome to From the Inside Out, a podcast on how college and prison programs advocate for prison abolition. I'm your host, Mads Clark, and thank you for being here. This podcast stems from my personal experiences as a justice-involved youth and the intersection this has had with my current research in my graduate program that focuses on higher education and student affairs. This podcast is a growing platform for not only me to speak on these issues, but also for other practitioners that do this work in their day-to-day lives, as well as for those who have been impacted through incarceration. Additionally, this podcast will showcase my research from the past few months and even earlier as the field of student affairs seeks to grow on topics our students wish to know so deeply about, one being prison and police abolition. But before we explore the current issues and contexts, we need to first rewind. In June of 2020, all eyes are on what justice means and what it can look like after George Floyd is murdered in late May by police in South Minneapolis, a place near and dear to my heart as a Twin Cities kid. Many conversations related to prison and police abolition and social change increased tenfold, not only locally, but globally. Flash forward to December 2020, the United States Congress announced that Pell Grants were made to be available again to incarcerated students after 26 long years. These conversations were being brought up by many, but at the forefront was youth, youth in K-12 and within higher education. The connection between the carceral state, higher education, and social justice is closer than ever before as advocates and activists for prison and police abolition work to unweave the oppressive systems before us and how higher education and the prison industrial complex are closely intertwined. As abolitionist works called us into action in the summer of 2020, they further asked student affairs practitioners to radically consider one of the most overlooked population of students, currently and formerly incarcerated scholars. Through narratives, research, and interviews with professionals in the field and those who were formerly incarcerated while being a scholar, this podcast, project, and paper asks us to consider where we have been, where we are, and where we are going when it comes to the connection between higher education, college and prison programs, and prison abolition. I want to acknowledge that this project and research began as a way to better understand the concepts of prison abolition and higher education in prison and the linkage between the two. However, as I have progressed through sources and interviews, I cannot help but reflect on my connection to this work more specifically. Upon meeting with Dr. Catherine D. Perry, the co-founder of Georgia State University's Prison Education Project, she noted that the ways that trauma related to justice-involved youth and families holds us accountable to retell these stories, experiences, and to educate, educate others with. We carry the burden of incarceration and the impacts felt throughout the roots of it. When I was eight years old, my father sat my two older sisters and I down and told us he was going on a vacation, and he would be gone for a few years. I remember crying and questioning why he would not be bringing me and my family. And just like that, a few days later, my dad was gone. Not long after that, we took our first trip to the beautiful resort town of Yankton, South Dakota. Just kidding. We, my mother parked our van across from an ornamented building. It looked gothic and powerful to my young eyes. We entered through heavily guarded doors and were led to waiting rooms with lockers. Nothing in, nothing out, said the walls and the guards. I began to think, what an odd vacation my dad picked to go on. As we were led through metal detectors, pat-downs, more waiting, and loud calls over the intercom, we were finally able to go into the visiting room. There was my dad. He looked different, less happy, more fit, and in khaki coveralls with a number painted on the left breast pocket. My dad was an inmate, someone society might deem as an offender or as a criminal for the rest of his life. I remember now my mom trying to explain to me what prison was, why my dad was there, and what would happen to him and to us while he was there. 
Being so young at the time, I had no way to effectively convey what was going on or how I could retain this information. I remembered the smells, the sounds, and the experiences most of all, of course. One of the most vivid memories of all was on one visit with my dad the first fall he was housed at the Yankton Federal Facility. We were able to walk around the grounds of the prison and it felt like I was on a tour of a college campus. I had joined my oldest sister and mom on a few around that time and I was instantly transported to a state of normalcy even if my dad was wearing khaki coveralls. I often thought about that moment as I continued through my kindergarten through senior year experience of high school. Why did it feel normal? Why did it look like a college? In high school, after my father had been released for some time, I began to piece together the trauma of my dad being incarcerated and the impacts that had on my family, myself, and my views of justice at an earlier age now that my father had been released. I also discovered that the facility where my father was incarcerated had in fact been a college, Yankton University, until the late 1980s. This fact, I've come to find out, is not uncommon in the United States as there are more jails and prisons within the country than colleges, according to the Bard Institute. Around this time, I also began to piece together whether I, whether I wanted to go to college or not. I asked my mom what college was like for her. She shared that she only ever obtained a partial associate's degree and that it no longer existed because the school she attended no longer existed either. I asked my dad to revisit the stories he would tell me when I was younger about Purdue, where he went for a semester or two for an accounting degree. He told me he loved the people, the community, and the parties, and wished he would have finished his degree. I knew he had taken some classes while incarcerated, but was curious what exactly those entailed. He told me he took art classes, an actuarial science class, and a communications class, all for college credit that he had to essentially work to pay off due to the lack of grants and funding available at the time. This was when the puzzle pieces began to connect for me to begin my journey in higher education. I wanted to not only craft a better future for myself and my family, but I wanted to prove it to my dad that his challenging work was not in vain while he was incarcerated. Flash forward to my senior year in my undergraduate experience, and I'm taking a course named Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, which is a national program that creates space for outside students currently attending an accredited institution to go within a prison facility's walls to attend a class with inside or currently incarcerated participants who sought to gain a college transcript through selected courses. My outside classmates and I traveled to the Shakopee Women's Correctional Facility every Monday night in the fall of 2018 to attend class behind the walls of the facility. The first time we entered the space for training and protocol, I was teleported back to the first time I visited my dad. I tried to keep my composure, but I remember crying when I got back home that night. This course truly helped me realize the connection between higher education and incarceration was closer than I had even previously thought. This course influenced me to become deeper involved within diversity, equity, and inclusion within student affairs that led me to this current moment as I narrate this podcast for my final project of my graduate program. Prison abolition is Prison abolition is not something I once thought about much, as media depictions and the general public seem to encourage prison as a worthwhile punishment. I always asked myself why my dad deserved to be incarcerated. And as I got older and began to learn more about the oppressive systems in place in the United States and globally, I began to discover that prison was a tool to inflict harm. I still have miles to go, like we all do, around the topic of prison abolition, but I'm uniquely positioned to reflect, reflect, write, and educate on this topic due to my direct and indirect experiences within the justice system and within higher education. I hope this podcast will help guide my final project 
this podcast in an effective manner to better help fellow practitioners, students, and my family understand these archaic systems that need to be instilled with change. A change that we can effectively advocate for through reflecting on what justice means to us, what access looks like, and how we can best ensure voices at the table for those who are incarcerated or have previously been incarcerated, especially those who hold additionally marginalized identities. So where do we begin? We have to begin at the beginning, of course, by understanding that the westernized concept of the prison industrial complex within the United States is an irrefutable tool of harm and oppression that punishes members of society under the guise of rehabilitation and repair. However, we know that prisons are not rehabilitative facilities as research and lived narratives of those who, who are currently and formerly incarcerated have shown that the inside does not foster the tools for growth in the ways most may view prison. Additionally, with the renewed vision for abolition that stemmed from the events of the summer of 2020, the mindset of rehabilitation from prison is becoming more widely seen as inaccurate. The tools of abolitionist practices, however, can be found within college and prison programs of all places. The other side of the coin of prisons is the role that higher education has in society. The portraits of offender versus scholar would come into mind first when comparing the two. An image of good versus bad. However, the coin that the prison industrial complex and higher education sits on is more alike on both sides than we think. Higher education is a tool seen to advance someone's p potential life trajectory to create and do well in life, whereas prison functions, functions similarly, but is more of a rehabilitative tool. Some abolitionist scholars like Angela Y. Davis and Cedric Robinson view higher education as a rehabilitative tool as well. As parents in often larger organizations, like the Army and Marines, bait students to attend higher education as an avenue to gain skills and learn more about themselves. Oftentimes, these students do not get the support or guidance their peers who wanted to attend college get. This creates an inside-out dichotomy within colleges and universities that is also perpetrated within prisons, those on the inside versus those on the outside, or law-abiding people. We can see the similarities and features of surveillance organizational charts and more between these two institutions within society, according to Heider and Lehman. Heider and Lehman also write that it is not just the similarities that have struck people to begin to see the need for prison abolition and education around abolition. Additionally, the reality is that those who are incarcerated are not given adequate tools to truly succeed post-release, and that is on the conscience of the American institutions of higher education. In 1994, under President Clinton, then-Senator Joe Biden authored the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act that was passed later that year in 1994. This bill overturned the use of Pell Grants to be used by incarcerated scholars that had been established back in the Higher Education Act of 1965. Before 1994, Pell Grants and the use of other federally mandated allowances for education were available to be utilized for incarcerated students. Many prison facilities saw an increase in their populations utilizing Pell Grants for their education while in prison, which led to aforementioned scholars turning an eye to the connection between higher education and prisons. Luftig, in 1978, outlined that not only did higher education programs in prison reduce the likelihood of recidivism, but were also integral in healing and providing a chance to incarcerated students once released. By granting a second chance at education and using said education as a tool for social <laughs> by granting a second chance at education and using said education as a tool for social change, many prison abolitionists around the same time period in the 1970s began to see the ties between higher ed and the prison industrial complex. 
prominent abolitionist voices of the 1970s, like Angela Y. Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Dorothy Roberts, would begin to conceptualize the path of what prison abolition could look like and what post-police and prison society would look like for those of marginalized identities. Much of their works would go without much applause at the time. However, their work would go on to be applauded and utilized in 2021 as Dorothy Roberts outlines three critical truths to the role of prison abolition, which has been critical to the abolitionist movement of today. Number one, today's carceral punishment system can be traced back to slavery and the racial capitalist regime it relied on and sustained. Number two, the expanding criminal punishment system functions to oppress black people and other politically marginalized groups in order to maintain a racist capitalist regime. And number three, we can imagine and build a more humane and democratic society that no longer relies on caging people to meet human needs and to solve problems. She goes on to write that with these three truths apply to those living in the margins of identity, as well as to those based on the white supremacist values upheld by policing states and the harmful institutions that coincide with them. More recently, Angelo I. Davis in 2003 notes that systems that work alongside prisons to perpetrate harm exist to cease the creation of rehabilitation and further white supremacist values among marginalized identities. Institutions of higher education are one of these systems based on their profound history of exclusion of marginalized populations and lineage to white supremacy. To fully unpack the connection between higher education and prison, prison abolition, and the role student affairs practitioners can play between these systems, we need to take a further examination into the history of college and prison programs, the importance of these programs, and the impact that they can have on those who are living with intersectional identities while incarcerated. In the late 1700s, the first prison was founded with understanding that this structure would house individuals that created harm across the spectrum of law and would be granted rehabilitative services that would help them re-enter society upon their release. One such service was education. The first instance of this occurred in 1834 when 30 tutors from Harvard Divinity College entered the Massachusetts State Prison and worked with incarcerated men to help them reach higher, holy learning that would help them re-enter back into society. Learning how to be godly or holy was seen as a way to forgive those in prison for their actions, and many religious study courses were taught rather than more skill-based courses. In the years after 1834, more prisons and state institutions began to catch on that education-based programming was in fact helpful in lowering recidivism rates and helping lower crime rates in their areas. Fast forward, and by the mid-2000s, and prisons across the country had developed robust college education programs in their facilities, with more forthcoming to offer not only just college courses, but associate's degrees, certificate programs, and full bachelor degree programs to any incarcerated individual. However, of course, based on the fact that Pell Grants were not able to be utilized within the mid-2000s, there was a really steep decline in how often these programs were being utilized. Additionally, Monikin in 1982 writes that access to rehabilitative services was not always the most welcoming or accessible to incarcerated folks of color. As there is long substantiated evidence that the policing system used in the United States has ties to slave patrols and kin policing. This subjected black and indigenous communities to higher marked crime rates leading to higher incarceration rates. The same rehabilitative educational programs utilized within prisons were often only made accessible to white identified prisoners, making their re-entry easier and their recidivism rates lower than those who identified as a person of color while incarcerated, historically. 
Gehrig from 1997 and Linden and Perry from 2008 detail that prison and higher education have a closer bond than meets the eye. For as long as prisons have been around, education within said institutions has also always been around. The intrinsic link between who has access to higher education and who is within prison facilities should ring an alarm for those teaching, working, and living within higher education. In 1848, Dr. Arnold, an academic who taught within prison facilities early in the history of college and prison programs, said, It is clear that when we need to act within education, it is also our own duty to study. Dr. Arnold asks educators to find connection between equality of educational access and the ideas of an inside and outside when it comes to prison and higher education. However, how can we trace equality when the prison industrial complex and higher education are synonymous with inaccessibility and harm to black, indigenous, and folks of color looking to pursue higher opportunity? Britton and Kalslack in 2007 outline how the racial barriers to higher education have created pathways for people of color to play a role in white supremacist culture's view of those from marginalized backgrounds. For example, the school-to-prison pipeline is a prime, realistic example of how systemic barriers can lead Black and Latinx folks, among other people of color, to commit harms in schools and receive harsh punishments for these actions as compared to their white counterparts. These punishments can lead to them recommitting harm and experiencing harsher and more criminal punishments for them, both inside and outside of a school. Halkovic in 2014 writes that granting the space to gather for people of color that have been erased from the dominant history of higher education, whether through incarceration or through the binds of white supremacy, is critical to creating more inclusive spaces in higher education for not only black, indigenous, and folks of color, but also those who come from a justice-involved background. As mentioned previously, within the last 50 to 60 years, the educational opportunities for incarcerated folks of color have increased while making recidivism rates decrease, uh, while college-seeking learners re-entering increase as well, meaning that those who have received college credit courses while incarcerated are more readily seeking college admittance. Holkovic again details that this stems from the disproportionately um, high rates of Black and Indigenous-identified incarcerated people in the United States and the state and organizational-driven efforts to grant opportunity and access over rehabilitative efforts that seek to disengage a person from community and justice. We must also continue to question what access can look like. The reality for students of color that are granted access to higher education on the defined outside of prison facilities is also a barrier historically. Scholars define higher education through the lens of whiteness as it has historically been an institution of granting education to white identified individuals exclusively until the creation of historically affiliated institutions such as historically black colleges and universities, tribal colleges and universities, and more. Gaining a higher education degree is proven to lead to higher salaries, more job opportunities, and a better quality of life. However, being admitted into college with a criminal record on top of a marginalized identity or identities is often hard to accomplish. College and prison programs make it easier to transition from prison to another educational institution as a transcript is granted to those who attend those courses. A transcript is a transformational tool that can lead to betterment for one's future, family, and community for those who partake. To further understand the deep connection of abolition in college and prison programs, we need to unpack the barriers that currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated scholars face while seeking a degree. Additionally, we must seek to understand the complexities for students we work with as more and more justice-involved students and or activist scholars question institutions of power. 
Unfortunately, the reality of gaining a transcript for incarcerated or previously incarcerated individuals came to an abrupt halt in the mid-90s. Scholars detail that in 1994, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act was passed with emphasis on taking away funding for rehabilitation efforts for incarcerated individuals, as mentioned previously in this podcast. One of the main losses was that of Pell Grants that gave funds to incarcerated individuals taking college courses in prison. This meant that many colleges and universities had to remove their programs and offerings from affiliated prison facilities. This additionally meant that many lost an opportunity for receiving higher education that then impacted their reentry. For some, this meant more focus on reentry and job training programs, while for others it meant a complete loss of programming depending on the prison. In the beginning of the 1990s, crime rates had begun to decrease after two decades of incredibly heightened rates. The reality was that crime rates were lowering because incarceration rates were rising. According to Gainsborough and Maurer in 2000, there was a 59% increase of prison population rates just from 1991 to 1998 alone that directly impacted communities of color, and in particular, young Black and Latino men and Indigenous women were highly impacted. While the rate of incarceration was increasing, so too was the rate at which Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people that were seeking higher education at public and private institutions within the United States. The demographic shifts happening across higher education and within mass incarceration signaled to colleges and universities that had once offered college and prison programs that more needed to be done to offer said courses and programs again even after Pell Grants had been removed from use. Many colleges and universities began to find new funding for their offerings as well as providing scholarships to incarcerated scholars, and since the late 1990s to early 2000s, there has of course been an increase. The call for heightening educational programs in prison facilities has again increased, but unfortunately, those who are able to attend these programs are not taking the opportunity to do so, whether based on finances and or interest. One large reason high education has become unattainable is due to the rising costs, and this is reflected in the lack of funding incarcerated scholars receive to attend college credit courses, even to this day. According to Davis in 2019, in the past five years, there has been an increase in college and prison program attendance that has proven that college and prison programs do work to help those re-entering to attain jobs, maintain family and wellness stability, and gain access to increased employment benefits. From 2008 to 2018, there was an increase of near 20% of those who took advantage of college and prison programs, and of that 20%, more than 75% had not reoffended or committed another crime. Of that 20%, over half those individuals that sought out education courses were identified as people of color with a large concentration in Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities. This again reflects similar trends in higher education as communities of color sought higher education on a similar timeline based on data from Espinoza and other scholars in 2019, with the American Council on Education's report on race and ethnicity in higher education. From this, there is a clear connection between higher education attainment in both correctional facilities and on, and on college campuses for people of color, and the impact it has created on communities regaining folks from reincarceration and those gaining new outlets for educational pursuit and access. The entangled history of college and prison programs reflected against the history of higher education when tracing the parallel timelines between incarceration rates and the rates of participation in higher education institutions for folks of color is critical to seeing the impact of college and prison programs. 
said impact not only reduces recidivism, but also grants opportunities to folks of color to pursue higher education outside of one's facility to increase their quality of life through gaining higher education. Not only are these impacts individualistic, but they are also based in advancing community care and wellness, which is a main tenet of prison abolition. This has led to an increase of leading by example when it comes to education and pursuits to engage in community growth over harm. College and prison programs are among one of the most helpful tools in higher education that has benefited communities among the margins of education today. Implementation of more carceral education programs in the utmost is in the utmost interest of higher education and student affairs professionals when it comes to future trends in the field and the betterment of access and inclusion within higher education. Throughout the history of college and prison programs, there has been intentional means to create more access when it comes to incarcerated scholars learning about social justice, equity, and abolition. Additionally, the need to discuss such topics is important to be talked about within student affairs and departments of study within higher education as well. We must practice what we preach. Legman in 2017 writes that those who work within higher education, and more specifically within diversity, equity, and inclusion, need to be aware of not only the work of abolitionists, but also that of restorative and transformative justice seekers. This is due to students having grown up around police brutality on the national level and having access to spaces like social media and more community-based organizations that encourage conversations and education on the topic. The more a topic is widely talked about in front of closed doors rather than behind them, the public becomes to view something as less and less taboo. The same needs to be done with prison and police abolition, not only within institutions of higher education, but within larger societal contexts. To first understand the importance and critical nature of the abolitionist mindset, we need to key in on critical historical elements of prison and police reform efforts, as well as the previously alluded to complexities of these two complexes coexisting across history. Famed abolitionist Miriam Kaba writes that the sole purpose of transforming systems is to create new growth. Growth where people from marginalized communities can heal, find hope, and plant resilience. How we experience and perceive prison and those who have been incarcerated is also under rightful pressure to be re-examined by those who work within larger institutions under white supremacist values. Foucault in 1975 questioned prison and society when he proposed, Are prisons overpopulated? or is the population over-imprisoned? This question begs us to re-examine how society within the United States has experienced prisons and how institutions of higher education are seen as major players in creating responsible people to go back into society post-graduation, which mirrors how some view prisons as spaces with the obligation to rehabilitate before releasing incarcerated individuals back into society. When folks look back on their experiences with prisons and police, many can identify memories of when they played police officers and robbers as children or when police officers visited their classrooms and talked about drug and alcohol safety while encouraging that those who do not follow the rules will be punished. Additionally, for folks of color, these experiences with police and prisons may look very different. However, education has always reinforced punishment and authority. A large majority of people often do not question police or the prison industrial complex, as many fear what might happen to society if crime rates advanced, if perpetrators roamed free, or if police simply no longer existed. Abolition is the answer to these questions rather than to defund or to reform. Both defunding prisons and police, as well as reform, have historically been proposed, discussed, and attempted even within the Twin Cities, but police brutality still persists. 
It is critical that these conversations do not exist only in legal courses, not on social media, and not only within diversity, equity, and inclusion spaces. It must persist within spaces of higher education as well, and even outside of those too. Thank you for listening to the first episode of From the Inside Out. Join me again soon as we explore what abolition is, how we can achieve it, and where we go from here. Stay tuned for bonus episodes that showcase my interviews with current practitioners working with college and prison programs, and my interviews with formerly incarcerated scholars. Thank you again for joining me. In community, Mads Clark. Mm -hmm.